Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering in the end of suffering. Sometimes when we hear that, we think, where's all the happiness? Where's all the joy? Where's all the uh, liberation, if you will? But if we reflect on what the Buddha is actually saying, suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering, what is the end of suffering but happiness, joy, peace, well-being, contentment, ease? And so we shouldn't mistake the Buddha's shorthand version of what he says, suffering and the end of suffering, as all that we need to consider. Because when asked, he also said that all the Buddhas, he, among all the other Buddhas, teach the same thing. To do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and to purify the mind. And this is the path, or these are the practices for uh, reaching and realizing the end of suffering. The other night I mentioned that all Dharma practices, whether it's reflections or taking the refuges and precepts or uh, practicing mindfulness or any of the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, um, certainly practicing mindfulness, development of insight, all of the concentration practices, anything you do to develop any of the paramis, there's just a lot of different practices that can be undertaken and inevitably will be undertaken as part of the journey of awakening, purifying the mind. They all have the uh, same characteristic in that they cultivate wholesome states of mind. And in the process, they suppress, overcome, and eventually uproot the unwholesome states of mind, or all the defilements that I spoke about the other evening. So tonight I want to speak about another practice, another parami, and another uh, force of purity in the mind. And that's generosity. Because generosity is not particularly a Buddhist uh, practice. People all over the world are generous and practice generosity and recognize the benefit of generosity. And it was often the practice that the Buddha spoke about first to anyone who inquired of what his teaching was because you didn't have to believe in the Buddha, you didn't have to believe in the Buddha's teachings, you didn't have to practice mindfulness. You didn't. Everyone can understand the benefit of generosity or the practicing of generosity. And so that's where he would start pointing out the practice, the benefits, but he also would go on to recognize or acknowledge that while generosity is good and it's a great practice, it does conduce to happiness, it does benefit others, there's a lot of compassion, it's not enough for realizing the end of suffering. And so it is an element it's a step, it's a piece, 
And it's something that anyone can understand and begin to undertake. But he taught it with the understanding that blind generosity, or just without reflecting on it, without really understanding what you're doing, while it's beneficial, there has, it has much more potential to become a wisdom practice, a compassion practice, a renunciation practice, a happiness practice. And it's not just a casual, um, although it can be, just a casual gesture. So I want to speak about the practice of generosity as a happiness practice, a renunciation practice, a compassion practice, and a mindfulness practice. Shantideva, an 8th century Indian scholar, Buddhist scholar, who wrote the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, he said, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others, and all the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself only. Generosity is one of those gestures, one of those behaviors, one of those actions which encompasses you know, compassion, happiness, love, renunciation, all in a single um, action. Mahasi Sayadaw, who is a Burmese monk that we practice, or this tradition, really, uh, of mindfulness and development of insight, kind of issues from, he and the Shwayu Min Sayadaw, he wrote in his um, encouraging counsel for, for aspiring uh, yogis, he wrote that it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. It's generosity that we can rely on for our wealth, happiness, and humanity. And so we might want to inquire, well, how is it that generosity provides this wealth, happiness, and humanity? The first, the first element of Practicing generosity is to remove one's attachment to the gift or the object that one is going to offer. And that is that removing of the attachment, that learning how to let go is the foundation of the whole path. The path of practice is not so much about acquiring anything so much as it is about letting go of that which obstructs one's freedom, one's liberation. And to, to cultivate the intention to benefit not only the single recipient or group that receives the gift, we can offer a gift, any gift really, with the understanding that somehow in the inscrutable ways that things work, may this gift be of benefit to all beings in some way. May the benefit of offering this touch, spread, ripple throughout humanity so that somehow the benefit touches everyone. 
So it's not only for the single recipient, but it's for what we can aspire to have it touch and benefit all beings. And in the process, it inevitably benefits us. To be generous requires even initially that we have a sense of abundance, that we recognize the abundance that we have in our life. And it's not just financial resources. It can be an abundance of knowledge. It can be an abundance of love and compassion. It can be an abundance of time. It can be an abundance of uh, material goods. And we all have a tremendous amount of personal resources that others can benefit from if we if we if we recognize that within ourselves but that's not always easy because you know there are many among us who have more than we need and still feel deprived so it it really takes some reflection on and careful looking at our the state of our mind not just the state of our garage and attics and storage <laughs> units, but the state of our mind and how we understand what it is that we have and what it is that, we, that can be done with it. When one practices generosity, it's really hard to be angry, jealous, fearful, um, feeling alienated or isolated, Quite naturally, when we offer any offer a dog a bone, you know, and you you feel happy. Of course, the dog's happy, but you feel happy. And so too with any other gift that we can offer, we feel happy. So it's not only for the benefit and happiness and well-being of the recipient, but actually, generosity is a practice for our own happiness. So the wealth that we obtained through the practice of generosity is a wealth of just recognizing that we do have an abundance, recognizing the wealth of wholesome qualities of mind that are cultivated in practicing generosity, as well as the flow of love and gratitude and appreciation that returns to us from the recipient of gifts that we offer. It said that there are three phases of happiness in in practicing generosity. When we think about being generous, when we're planning to be generous, when we're imagining how we can be generous or to whom we can be generous, we can get happy just thinking about that. Oh boy, I'm going to do something for this person, something that they really need or want or something that will be beneficial to them. And in thinking about it, we get happy. In the act of giving at the time that we're meeting and face-to-face, we can see the joy on the face of the others, the appreciation or the gratitude, and we can feel happy in the act of giving. And long after the actual gift has been offered, every time we think about having done that, it reminds us and we're happy again. So Manindra, one of our teachers uh, from India, who's passed away now, he used to say, if you really want to be happy, practice a lot of generosity and remember it. Because every time you remember, you just feel happy again. 
happiness, uh, generosity is always accompanied by a lot of love, a lot of compassion, a lot of joy. It takes a lot of intention, it takes a lot of energy, and the reward is happiness for ourselves and for the recipient. Years ago, before I ever even went to Burma and ordained, I was living in Western Massachusetts, and I saw an article about a potter in a Japanese tradition who had a studio, workshop studio nearby, and he had built a Japanese tea house and invited someone from Japan every summer to offer a tea ceremony. So I thought, I like tea. (laughs) So I went... And of course it isn't the tea that I drink, but anyway, it was a beautiful place. It was just wonderful, uh, very uh, aesthetic gardens around this whole workshop, studio, the Japanese tea house, and I did go to the ceremony, and I looked at all the pottery, and it was just really pretty pretty exquisite, pretty, pretty wonderful. And he had one whole room that was all kind of like museum quality pieces that he either didn't sell or they were very pricey. And I didn't really have that refined and aesthetic sense, but they were nice. So I spent a couple of hours in the garden and walk around doing the tea ceremony and I was really, I just got high. I just got happy. It, just, it was really just wonderful. And I wanted to thank him for creating this place. But he wasn't around. He, he was traveling and he wouldn't be back for a couple of weeks, so I left. And when he did return, I wanted to take him a gift. Uh, so, not being very wealthy at the time, uh, what I really appreciated was the bread that I made every weekend. I was working manual labor, I ate a lot of bread, so every weekend I would bake bread, different kinds, but I would always manage, or always intend, to give one loaf away every weekend. So I took him a loaf of bread. I took him a loaf of bread, and he was a single guy that was middle-aged or whatever, and I just spent some time with him and offered him the bread and thanked him for creating the place and told him how much enjoyment I got out of it and... That was it. Later, when he fired his kill, he had a wood-fired kill that he fired once every season, four times a year. He spent the intervening times uh, making his pieces and getting them ready for firing, and then four times a year he would fire. So he needed someone to help him fire because a wood-fired kill takes, you know, 36 hours, about 36 hours to fire, to get it built up to temperature, in all the chambers and then to shut it down so that the, the, the pieces would glaze. So he started the fire and he invited me over to kind of tend the fire through the night while he got some sleep before he came back to finish it. So he just basically taught me how to do it and I spent six or eight hours keeping the fire going and he said, you know, in a couple of days when the kill cools down, you come back, we'll unload it, and you can take your pick from the pieces in the firing. So I said, great. So a couple of days later, I came back, and we emptied the kill. It took a couple hours, taking all the pieces out. Of course, he took all the tins 
what he rated as a 10 and put them aside because those go to the museum room. But of everything that's left, he said, take your pick, you can have anything you want. So I just picked a bowl, uh, kind of a usable, a functional bowl that was enough for a meal and it was pretty simple, pretty plain, but somehow it meant a lot to me. I just really enjoyed being with him and the place. And I used that bowl for years whenever I went on retreat. I would take my own bowl. And it was just the right amount, you know, not too much, you know, and it, it was a good measure. So I put a lot of love into that bowl. I put a lot of attachment into that bowl. <laughs> and then several years later, I decided to go to Burma, packed all of my things into storage, put them in the attic at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, and went off to Burma, came back five years later, and out of gratitude for my teachers, my Western teachers, uh, that had kind of led me on the path, or kind of guided me onto the path, I wanted to give some of my teachers gifts. So I rummaged through my stuff to see what I had of value, and I came across this bowl. <coughs> so I said, oh, this will be a nice bowl to give one of my teachers. So I made the appointment and made the gift to one of my teachers and she had just recently had a house built and used it not so much as a functional piece but she put it on a mantelpiece over her fireplace and I would see it there for you know a few years every time I'd go to a meeting or something there I'd see it and I'd think oh that's nice she really appreciates that and it just made me really happy to be able to give this bowl to someone who really appreciated it like that I lost track of it and her, didn't, didn't, didn't go there so often. And then a few years later, I was invited to dinner in Cambridge, Massachusetts to a Dharma supporter, someone who's a real supporter of the Dharma. And they wanted to talk to me about our um, project, our sanctuary on Maui. So I went and we were having dinner late in the afternoon out on the deck and it got chilly. So we went inside. And this woman practices a lot of Dharma and she's a great benefactor and she lives very simply she had a small place lived very simply and so we went inside and she had a, a living room so we went to the living room and in the living room there was just one big potted plant and uh, a little coffee table with a couch a little two person thing on one side and a one chair, a one person chair on the other side, and there was a little Buddha about an inch and a half tall on the mantelpiece. So she said, We can sit over here. So we got some tea, we sat down, and I looked at the table, the coffee table between us, and there was that bowl. <laughs> I said, First I had this thought, Oh, my teacher gave that bowl away. And then I, <laughs> and then I said, Hey, that's a pretty nice bowl there. She says, yes, it is. She says, one of my teachers gave it to me as a gift. And I said, I know. I said, <laughs> so I said, would you like to know the history of that bowl? So I told her the history of the bowl. And we had a good laugh. And what struck me is how this bowl was a gift from the potter to me, from me to my teacher, from my teacher to one of her benefactors. And all along the way, we all were happy to receive it, happy to use it, and happy to give it away. The happiness, the value of the happiness far outweighed the cost of the bowl. Of course, the, I got the bowl as a gift. 
But whatever you would have paid for it, you couldn't get that much happiness no matter what you paid for it. And it really taught me and showed me that, you know, even though you give something away, you don't really give anything away. You get so much in return from being generous. And she still has the bowl. <laughs> and I, I guess, maybe she's given it away. That'd be interesting. But what we can see is that the value of the gift is much less than the, the happiness that's received. And we don't really give anything away. Even though I was very attached to it, and still appreciate it, it, I was more than happy to offer it as a gift. Generosity like this is, is one of the paramis, forces of purity in the mind, because to, to practice generosity, we have to learn letting go. We have to learn non-attachment. And to purify the mind of attachment is, well, that's the path. <laughs> Letting go, learning to let go is the path to the end of suffering. The Buddha said of generosity, said, if beings knew as I know the resultant benefits of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. What did the Buddha know about the power of sharing that he would never let an opportunity go by if there was something to share and some, someone to receive it. Kind of makes, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement. That's, if beings knew as I know the resulting benefits of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. We can only discover for ourselves through our own practice of generosity. But it is said that the benefits that accrues to the donor of gifts are five. The first is that you're loved by everyone. And it's true. Has anyone ever given you a gift and you don't like them? I mean, maybe. But for the most part, you know, dogs love people who give them bones, you know. Cats love people that give them strokes. Uh, people love people who in any in any way offer gifts. There was one monk at the monastery where I was in Rangoon for many years, and he was just this gregarious and energetic teacher, Saida. Um, and he had a kind of a, a standing policy that any yogi in the monastery, and sometimes there were several thousand, could come to his kuti and get out of jars in his, uh, in his cottage um, jaggery. Jaggery is um, like sugarcane crystals. And because you can have sugar in the afternoon when you're on eight precepts. And there'd be a steady stream of yogis coming in, just picking out a piece of jaggery and popping it in the mouth and going on. But there was a period of time for a year or so when he wanted me to help him learn English. And I would go to his cottage every evening, you know, for an hour, an hour and a quarter. And we would just talk. We would just talk English as best as he could and as best as I could make out what he was trying to say, and, and gradually he would learn. Every time, every time, he gave me something before I left. It might just be a bottle of soda, it might be a notebook, it might be a pen, it might be a set of robes, it might be an umbrella, it might be whatever. But every time, every day, for over a year, he offered me something. He would not let me leave 
without giving me something. Most amazing. And he was one of the most well-loved monks in the monastery. Not just because he was generous, but not only that, but otherwise too. It's also said that when one offers gifts, of course you start to associate with people who uh, either appreciate or use those gifts in really beneficial ways, not just for themselves, but if you're offering, in this case, to uh, monasteries or nunneries, or you're offering to philanthropic, philanthropic or humanitarian agencies, they do a lot of good. So you get to associate with good people in practicing generosity. Also, it's said that you have a good reputation. If you're generous and sincerely generous and not kind of in a businessman's exchanging uh, habit, but just really generous, that uh, you have a good reputation. People people see the purity of your heart. People see the the sincerity of your care and compassion and generosity. And it's said that one has a lot of self-confidence. Because if one's generous, who is going to blame you? And so there's a feeling of ease uh, in those who are generous and just moving throughout society in whatever group that they might happen to be in. There's an ease because of that level of self-confidence. Nicholas Kristof, who's the op-ed, wrote an op-ed column in the rights for the New York Times frequently, he wrote about some research that was done at the National Institute of Health in Washington. And he found that their research revealed that when one thinks of offering generosity to charity, areas of the brain light up that are usually associated with selfish pleasures like eating and sex, which implies that we are hardwired to be altruistic, concluding, while charity has a mixed record of helping others, it has an almost perfect record of helping ourselves. We know sometimes we offer gifts and it gets used or misused or abused or lost or siphoned off somewhere. And yet, almost always, it arouses pleasure, pleasure zones of the brain, if you will. It conduces to our own happiness. It's not just for the happiness of the recipient. Generosity is a mindfulness practice because to the extent that we bring awareness to the whole process of considering, offering, reflecting on, that mindfulness, that awareness, heightens our appreciation, heightens our uh, the, the wholesome factors of mind that get aroused. And it's also a compassion practice because people benefit from gifts. A few years ago, I was meeting with several of you on a regular basis in Portland. So I'd go to Portland half a dozen times a year, and at that time, and maybe it's still so, it seemed like there were a lot of homeless people on the streets of Portland, downtown Portland. And where I live in Maui, you don't see homeless people on the street. I live on ranch land. There's no street. So it's just a lot of homeless people, I thought. And I found myself trying to avoid them partly because I wasn't really comfortable around them. You know, getting appealed to or having to walk around and I just, 
I just didn't know who they were, and it was kind of, I was, I was afraid of them, and I didn't, I just was uncomfortable. And then I realized at some point, it's like, I'm suffering with their condition. And I thought, now wait a minute, <laughs> can they do anything about that, or is that me? And I said, well, I, I have to take care of my own suffering, my, un, my discomfort, my fear, my anxiety of walking by them, around them, avoiding them, denying them a gift or whatever. So I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go, I'm just going to meet them. I'm going to find out who they are. And so I made it a practice of approaching homeless people, panhandlers, whoever was laying around on the street or sitting on the street or appealing for whatever reason with just a, a non-critical willingness to just greet them. So I'd often just go, how are you? How's it going today? Um, what do you need? That got a lot of interesting answers. <laughs> but I just, made, I just made it a practice to overcome my own fear and anxiety and discomfort. Just greet and meet. You know? And then offer them something. You know, a dollar or two, sometimes five. I mean, sometimes I say, what do you need? I need 50 bucks. I wouldn't offer that much. But nevertheless, I would just find a way to offer something. And I realized that what I actually gave them was not so much a dollar or two or five. It was the touch of humanity, love. It's just I cared about them enough to even connect with them as another human being. And so they got they got recognized. They got a chance to share something about their life with another person who cared. And that is a great gift. That's the gift that gets offered whenever we practice generosity. We let someone else know, I care about you. I care about your condition. Maybe I can't solve your problems. Maybe I can't be here every day. Maybe I can't take you home and clean you up and give you a home. can't do that. But I can connect with you. I can see you. And I can let you know that I care. And in that way, generosity is and can be a powerful uh, compassion practice. A wise person, the Buddha said, gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hand, gives it showing respect, gives a valuable gift, and gives it with the understanding that something will come of it. And on the dissolution of that body after death, that person or that being, that stream of consciousness and karma, will reappear great among the gods or great among human beings. Buddha's talking about the actual act of giving. Gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hand, gives it showing respect, and gives a valuable gift with the understanding that it's a beneficial thing to do. Why? 
Why is it so important to reflect on it that way and to uh, fulfill as many of those conditions as you can? Well, it's because in the act of generosity, you want to impress on your mind, on your heart, in as many ways as possible, the, the, the significance of what you're doing. You're practicing non-attachment. And so if you can see and hear and feel and feel good about the gift, it makes a greater impact on the mind. So we're not just kind of casually just kind of, you know, tossing it off, which is also practicing generosity, but it doesn't make a very deep impression on your own mind. So the Buddha is talking about how we make a deep impression, a powerful impression, so that when that karma resurfaces as a reflection later, you have a lot of clarity, a lot of understanding, a lot of uh, input to kind of recall that that act of non-attachment. Generosity is one of what are called the three foundations of the Dharma, or of the three foundations three pillars of the Dharma for establishing the Dharma in our life. Dana, the practice of generosity. Sila, the practice of living in harmony according to the precepts. Dana Sila Bhavana, which is the uh, development of the mind, both through concentration and insight. And what does it mean that they're the three pillars of the Dharma? Well, there are three practices which together provide a stable support for establishing your life in the Dharma. And if any one of them is missing, well, you've got something, but it's not very stable in your life. And so we can see that if you practice generosity, you will be not harming. Oh, so generosity supports non-harming. If you also practice generosity with a lot of reflection, you can learn to be very wise in your practice of generosity. So generosity also supports the development of wisdom. Wisdom, on the other hand, will guide you to live in harmony. That's smart. And also will guide you to practice generosity. So all three of these practices mutually support each other. And when they do, we can see that the life of the Dharma, or the life of the truth, the life of living in alignment with the way things are, can grow in our life. Or we can grow in commitment to living in alignment with the truth and the way things are. So these three practices, the Buddha said, are really uh, the foundation for really bringing the Dharma into your life fully. Generosity is a practice of letting go. Last night I spoke... Was it last night? Maybe. I spoke about the practice of renunciation. The practice of letting go of that mindfulness leads us to in this practice of awareness and the development of insight. 
several years ago, when we were offering a month-long retreat every year on Maui, a woman came from uh, California to do the retreat frequently. And she had started a non-profit. She worked in the Palo Alto, the high-tech area, and she lived there. And she started a non-profit to take the question, what is enough, into corporate headquarters. So her, she was a consultant, and she also took the question, what is enough? She got, she tried to get boards of directors of corporations to consider in their own sphere of influence, what is enough? When is this corporation going to be big enough, have enough, do enough, whatever? Or as an individual, to ask the question, what is enough? And it was in an attempt to heighten everyone's um, understanding of the impact of our lifestyle on the resources of the earth. Well, that was 10 or 15 years ago when she started that. And since then, we've come to see and have a lot more uh, understanding of the dire condition of the earth, the climate, and the impact of our lifestyle on home, our home, this earth. And so I've reflected a lot on how, well, what is enough in my personal life? What is enough of anything, whether it's food or travel or uh, material goods? How many storage, you know, boxes do I need of stuff that, well, I don't really use? It's more than enough. And so I've really started asking myself and started asking students, you know, to really consider, does our lifestyle, does our individual lifestyle, does it have an inordinate impact on the Earth's resources? Is there some way that we are taking more than our share, considering that there are untold numbers of generations of beings yet to be born that are going to want to live on the face of this earth? Are we living in such a way that we're taking something from them without their permission? Maybe the chance to live with an abundance or happiness or clean air or clean water. You know, when we, when we undertake the precepts to not harm, sometimes it seems like, well, I'm not harming you right now. But when we reflect a little bit about how our actions impact others, it's pretty sobering just how many, how impactful our lifestyle really is. And so I think that it's a, it's a Dharma question. It's a, it's a profound question for we who are practicing awareness, we who are practicing non-harming, we who are practicing compassion and we who are practicing uh, renunciation to really consider what we can do individually and collectively to uh, support the happiness and opportunities of, well, 
unborn generations. For some of us, it's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And for some of us, it's without children, it's friends' children. So it's a question, you know, that we we should consider. This this place here, Cloud Mountain, is a sanctuary. It's a refuge. It's a home for the Dharma. It's a place away from extraordinary consumption. We get to live pretty simply. And it's a powerful lesson to come here and to live so simply in harmony with a quite a good-sized group of people in a small place and actually not be that miserable. <laughs> Think about it. You know, these mega-mansions that we kind of hide ourselves in with our much smaller family are bigger than a lot of the places here. Sometimes a little bit askew. And so we need to... I think it's beneficial to reflect on what we get here in... out of the Dharma and a sanctuary like this and how to use this understanding in our life for the benefit not only of ourselves and our family, our immediate family, but, as I mentioned, those who are not yet born. The Bodhisattva, who became the Buddha, the Bodhisattva was born under a tree. He sat under a tree. He first attained jhana or absorption under the tree when he was a young boy. He realized full awakening under a tree, and it said that he died under a tree. And he said of this, I resort to remote forest thickets, resting places in the forest, as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. Seeing in myself this possession of wisdom, I find great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to the forest and these resting places in the forest. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. I've really thought about that. What, what did the Buddha mean? He went to the forest to rest in these remote places, well, for, for his own benefit here and now. It was a pleasant abiding but also because of his compassion for future generations. Is our coming to rest here in this forest a compassionate act for future generations? And how might it be so? And he said, there are these trees and the roots of trees and there are empty huts. There will soon be empty huts here. Meditate. Do not be negligent unless lest you regret it later. Go to the forest, sit under a tree or an empty hut, and meditate lest you regret it later. The Buddha's chief patroness, Wisaka, said, When I remember my acts of generosity, I shall be glad. When I'm glad, I shall be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. When my body is tranquil, I'll feel pleasant. When I feel pleasant, my mind becomes 
concentrated, collected, stable. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of enlightenment. Just by reflecting on her generosity. It's said that the purity of an act of generosity depends on three elements. The purity of the giver, the purity of the gift, and the purity of the recipient. What is the purity of the giver? Those who are offering gifts have to purify their mind of attachment. With attachment, they cannot offer a gift wholeheartedly. And maybe they can give something away, but it's not from the heart. And so the purity of the giver is when the giver, when the one who's offering a gift, has freed their attachment to the object or the gift, but also freed their attachment to the result of their giving. Because sometimes, you know, we give a gift hoping that, you know, it's going to be beneficial in this way or that way, or we're going to get some kind of expression of gratitude in return. It may not happen. It may not happen that way. And also has purified their mind of attachment to the act of giving, not not kind of taking a lot of pride, kind of puffing themselves up, kind of creating a sense of self around being a generous person. All of these attachments need to be loosened for one to really purify their heart, purify their mind in the act of generosity. The purity of the gift is, of course, that it's an appropriate gift for the recipient and it's beneficial. Now, when speaking of monks and nuns and supporting renunciates, you know, there are things that monks and nuns can use legally or according to the rules and beneficially. And there's a lot of stuff that's not very useful to them. So we might consider, is what we are offering others appropriate? Is it beneficial? Have we acquired it in a a kind of a wholesome way? Or have we kind of, in whatever way we might kind of, squirrely, squirrely way, acquired something that we then give away? The other purity of the gift is in considering the value of the gift. Because if we offer a gift that we really don't feel good about, it's hard to feel the joy and happiness that could be there. But if you offer a gift that has benefit and it's valuable to whatever degree for that person, then the joy and the happiness and the intention and the delight in offering it is increased every time we think about it. The purity of the recipient is if that person is pure of their speech and their behavior and their understanding, of course they can make beneficial use of that gift for the benefit of others. Now sometimes we offer gifts to people who consume or use for themselves. That's beneficial. But sometimes we make gifts to like Cloud Mountain and they use gifts here 
to benefit all of us. And the gifts that we receive from what Cloud Mountain offers us, we take out into the world and benefit others. And so, somehow the gift that we offer here gets multiplied in the benefit that is received in the number of beings that receive the benefit. When giving charities and donations, one should consider wisely to whom to give. Charity and donations are like seeds, the Buddha said. If sown in fertile soil, they will yield abundant fruit. If sown in poor soil, one will reap poorly. After I'd been in Burma for for more than four years, I was beginning to think about return to the West. And a couple of Burmese women heard about me and came to see me. And they said, look, before you, before you leave Burma, you've got to meet our teacher. Well, every Burmese family has a teacher. And the teacher is always a Burmese Buddhist monk who's kind of like the family uh, therapist, counselor, minister, uh, parental backup for disciplining the kids, and uh, things like that. So I'd seen, I'd met a lot of them, <laughs> you know, and frankly, I wasn't, I really wasn't that interested. So I said, no, no, I, 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 mm, 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 mm. and they said, no, no, you, you, you've got to meet it. You've got to meet our teacher. And they were insistent. And I said, okay. So the appointed day came. They came to pick me up in a taxi, which is a pickup truck. They sat in the back. I sat in the front. I was a monk. And off we went. Before we'd gone, they had told me about this monk that we were going to go see. And he was a well-known monk uh, on the northern outskirts of Burma, uh, of Rangoon. And he had formerly been the meditation teacher at the meditation center that I was in when it first opened in 1949. And he had been uh, a good monk and a good meditator then, and so he was asked by Mahasi Sayadaw to be the main teacher. So he was the teacher of the students that came to the monastery, the meditation center in the first few years. And after a couple of years, this monastery was really uh, becoming popular and just lots of people were coming to the center to practice because it was a very effective uh, way of practice. And he just got more responsibilities, more people to teach and more responsibilities, and it was a little bit much. So he asked Mahasi Sayadaw if he could be relieved of his duties and to go on his own way. And Mahasi Sayadaw said no. And it's, it's kind of the relationship that monks have with their superiors, their preceptors and those that we... Uh, learn from or our teachers uh, there's there's some level of commitment and uh, respect and anyway so he taught for a few more years and after a few more years it was even bigger and more responsibilities and more work teaching and he went to Mahasi Saito and asked him again if he could be relieved of his duties and Mahasi Saito said no so he worked and taught more people for a few more years 
And after he'd been there 10 years teaching, and the meditation center was a huge success, he went to Mahasi Sayadaw and asked him once again, and there's something about asking three times in the Burmese, in the Buddhist tradition, and if he could be relieved of his duties, and Mahasi Sayadaw said, okay. So he left the center, and he went to what was then the outskirts of Rangoon, to a little grove of trees. Well, there was a, there was a monastery there, and, and he was given a, a couple of acres of this little forest for his own monastery. And he'd lived there for the past, at this point, 35 or so years. And he was just, the, the two women just had a lot of stories about him and his compassion and his wisdom and his power of mind. And the fact that he lived so simply when he was so popular among so many people as a teacher. And they said that even in his monastery, this little forest monastery, he wouldn't allow electricity or phone or cement buildings. It was just little cooties for a few monks and a dining room where they ate and then a big dormitory for women. Because a lot of the uh, women who have finished their family chores, raising their kids or whatever, they go to the monastery. <laughs> a good place to go and kind of retire or live out their life. And they get to practice and they get to, you know, they do a little cleaning and whatnot, but they get to live simply. So he's telling me about him and, okay. So we went, went to his cottage and I went in and paid my respects and they were there translating and they were talking for a while and then he asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm, uh, I've been in this Burma for four or five years and I'm about to go back to America and I just wondered if you had any advice, any uh, words of wisdom for me. And he said, uh, he, he was very reflective and pretty quiet actually. He's really something. And he said, you know, when you go back, you know, things are going to be different. But he said, Mo mostly you should just keep doing your practice. If you keep doing your practice, everything will be okay. Which seemed, well, at different times, seemed like a big letdown. <laughs> and uh, also seemed like pretty, pretty practical. So, uh, somehow I was really impressed with him, so I asked him if I could come practice with him for a couple of weeks before I left. And he said yes. Of course, at that time in Burma, you couldn't do that. It was under very rigid military control. But somehow I weaseled permission out of the appropriate government bureaucracy to go stay with him for a couple of weeks. And I went there, and he. when I got there, he took me to his uh, meditation cootie, which was kind of out back of where he uh, lived, really. And it was a long uh, building. It was like, it was as long as this, this room, maybe 60 feet long. And it was about six feet wide. There was a bed at one end and a toilet at the other. And the windows, it was lined with windows on the side, but the windows had shutters on them so that you couldn't really see out. You could just see the ground below, but you couldn't see out uh, horizontally. And it was where he used to practice. You know, he could just sit and walk in there 
and go to the toilet and sleep and nobody didn't have to see anybody didn't bother nobody bothered him and he was going to let me practice there so I went in and I said before I went in I said well should I go on alms what time is alms round you know so I can go on alms round he said you know you're only going to be here for a couple of weeks let me and the other monks go on alms round and we'll share our food with you okay so I went in the room and I started practicing you know sitting walk in silence and solitude and you know how it is after a couple of days, you're kind of like... <sighs> so I was kind of like a little bit at wit's end. You know, just, just needing a little space, that's it. Needing a little space. So I said, I think I'll go out and walk around the monastery and just kind of get a little space. So I go to the door, open the door to go out, and he's standing right there. <laughs> and he just looks at me like, very compassionately, kindly, not with any hint of, what are you doing? But just kind of, you know, so I just, okay, went back in and closed the door. Kept practicing. And I practiced a few more days, another week or something, and the teacher was getting pretty tight in there. My mind was tight, not that the building was tight. And I I decided, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out, walk around the monastery and get a little fresh air. And I go to the door, and I open the door, go out, and he's standing right there. <laughs> you know, when you're uh, practicing with people like that, what have you got to hide? <laughs> really? I mean, they know what's going on better than you do. And it's a great, it's a great relief, actually, to practice with people who, monks like that, who just know your mind <coughs> better than you do. Because what do you got to hide? I mean, just, you can just dump it out, let it go. There's really nothing so personal about it. Last couple of days I was there, he said, you can go on alms round with us in the morning. And the last day I was there, there had been a ceremony or a kind of a festival the night before. And the way they do it in Burma, they set up these loudspeakers and they chant and talk and there's rural and stuff going on all night over these loudspeakers. Just, I mean, it's unbelievable how loud and that there's no noise control, no noise ordinance or anything. It's just, that's the way they do it there. So, didn't get much sleep, went out to go on alms round, and all the monks were lined up, and decided I checked all the, checked our robes, checked our bowls, see if we were dressed properly, and we headed out to the monastery. So he was at the head of the line, and I was about four or five back, and there was a couple of monks behind me. When he got to the edge of the monastery, the edge of the forest, where suburbia started, I looked ahead and I could see the road ahead was lined with hundreds of people waiting to offer he and his monks alms. But he stepped aside and he waved the monks past him to go. And when I came by, he pulled me aside and he turned around and went out the back way, went out the back gate of the monastery. Nobody out there, nobody waiting out there. And we walked for five, ten minutes along these ox cart trails, really. No cars, no, and a few bicycles maybe, but just ox cart trails. And it was like I imagined it being at the time of the Buddha. It's just, you just go for your daily alms with the Buddha or a monk. And after 10 or 15 minutes, we turned a corner and came into view of a small shop and somebody there said, oh, the monks are coming and everybody got something to offer the monks. So we stepped up to this roadside 
cafe kind of thing. And everybody, everybody in the cafe, all the shop owners, people around, anybody who's around, they take off their shoes, if they have them on, kick off their slippers, military guys take off their boots, put them on the ground, they bow down, they get something, and they offer it to us. We stood there for like 10 minutes as streams of people came to offer us. Of course, our bowls got full quickly. And little temple boys would come, get plastic bag, we'd dump our bowls, get filled up again, dump our bowls. And these temple boys, are, and when we started walking, they're carrying, walking along carrying these bags of rice and everything that we get offered. And he took me on an alms round around that suburban area where his monastery was in the middle. And we went on an alms round for almost a couple hours, eventually making our way back to the monastery, followed by a whole gaggle of little temple boys with a lot of plastic bags of stuff, much more than we could ever eat, of course. We met the other monks, we had our meal, and the interesting thing is everything that's collected on alms round has to be either used that day by monks or given away. And so we would have all that we needed, the women at the monastery would get what they needed, and then he would give the rest away to the poor people in the neighborhood. And this is the way he lived. He had lived in this, what was initially the outskirts of Rangoon. But because he was so popular and such a good teacher and lived such a, a life of integrity and awareness that a lot of the people that had practiced with him in the center of Rangoon when he was teaching at the meditation center moved out there to be around him. And now his little two-acre forest was in this middle of this vast urban sprawl of people who would come there because he was there. And he had built a huge, or he had built a huge meditation hall because they were householders and they would have to go to work and try to go to work if they had a job during the day. And then in the evening, they would come and practice at the center and he would give them a talk. And that's the way he'd lived for the last 35 years living his life of integrity and supporting this whole vast sprawling suburb of Rangoon. And, of course, he was supported, and they were supported with the Dharma. And it just showed me how his generosity in living his life, in sharing his life with others, so powerful in such a uh, great, compassionate, wise, skillful action for so many people. It's said that the Dharma will protect those who protect the Dharma. And the way we protect the Dharma is to practice. If we protect the Dharma by practicing, the Dharma will take care of us. That monk's name was Shweum Insaido, and his student and successor is Utejaniya. What we get from Utejaniya is from him. That's the gift that we've received on this retreat. So let's sit quietly and let the words...
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.